Book Two, Chapter Five, Part One of Lord of the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Therese. Lord of the World by Robert U. Benson. Book Two, Chapter Five, Part One. Percy Franklin, the new Cardinal Protector of England, came slowly along the passage leading from the Pope's apartments, with Hans Steinmann, Cardinal Protector of Germany, blowing at his side. They entered the lift, still in silence, and passed out two splendid, vivid figures, one erect and virile, the other bent, fat, and very German, from spectacles to flat-bubbled feet. At the door of Percy's suite, the Englishman paused, made a little gesture of reverence, and went in without a word. A secretary, young Mr. Brent, lately from England, stood up as his patron came in. "'Eminence,' he said, "'the English papers are come.' Percy put out a hand, took a paper, passed on into his inner room, and sat down. There it all was, gigantic headlines and four columns of print, broken by startling title phrases and capital letters, after the fashion set by America a hundred years ago. No better way even yet had been found in misinforming the unintelligent.' He looked at the top. It was the English edition of the era. Then he read the headlines. They ran as follows. The national worship, bewildering splendor, religious enthusiasm, the abbey and God, Catholic fanatic, ex-priest as functionaries. He ran his eyes down the page, reading the vivid little phrases, and drawing from the whole a kind of impressionist view of the scenes in the abbey on the previous day, of which he had already been informed by the telegraph, and the discussion of which had been the purpose of his interview just now with the Holy Father. There plainly was no additional news, and he was laying the paper down when his eyes caught a name. It is understood that Mr. Francis, the ceremoniarius, to whom the thanks of all are due for his reverent zeal and skill, will proceed shortly to the northern towns to lecture on the ritual, it is interesting to reflect that this gentleman only a few months ago was officiating at a Catholic altar. He was assisted in his labors by twenty-four confreres, with the same experience behind them. "'Good God,' said Percy aloud. Then he laid the paper down. But his thoughts had soon left this renegade behind, and once more he was running over in his mind the significance of the whole affair, and the advice that he had thought it his duty to give just now upstairs. Briefly, there was no use in disputing the fact that the inauguration of pantheistic worship had been as stupendous a success in England as in Germany. France, by the way, was still too busy with the cult of human individuals to develop larger ideas. But England was deeper, and somehow, in spite of prophecy, the affair had taken place without even a touch of pathos or grotesqueness. It had been said that England was too solid and too humorous. Yet there had been extraordinary scenes the day before. A great murmur of enthusiasm had rolled round the abbey from end to end, as the gorgeous curtains ran back, and the huge masculine figure, majestic and overwhelming, colored with exquisite art, had stood out above the blaze of candles against the tall screen that shrouded the shrine. Markenheim had done his work well, and Mr. Brand's passionate discourse had well prepared the popular mind for the revelation. He had quoted in his peroration, passage after passage from the Jewish prophets, telling of the city of peace, whose walls rose now before their eyes. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. Violence shall no more be heard in thy land, 
wasting nor destruction within thy borders. O thou so long afflicted, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors, and thy foundations with sapphires. I will make thy windows of agates, and thy gates of carbuncles, and all thy borders of pleasant stones. Arise, shine, for thy light is come. As the chink of the censer chains had sounded in the stillness, with one consent the enormous crowd had fallen on its knees, and so remained, as the smoke curled up from the hands of the rebel figure who held the thurible. Then the organ had begun to blow, and from the huge massed chorus in the transepts had rolled out the anthem, broken by one passionate cry from some mad Catholic. But it had been silenced in an instant. It was incredible, utterly incredible, Percy had told himself. Yet the incredible had happened, and England had found its worship once more, the necessary culmination of unimpeded subjectivity. From the provinces had come the like news, and cathedral after cathedral had been the same scenes. Markenheim's masterpiece, executed in four days after the passing of the bill, had been reproduced by the ordinary machinery, and four thousand replicas had been dispatched to every important centre. Telegraphic reports had streamed into the London papers that everywhere the new movement had been received with acclamation, and that human instincts had found adequate expression at last. If there had not been a god, mused Percy reminiscently, it would not have been necessary to invent one. He was astonished, too, at the skill with which the new cult had been framed. It moved round no disputable points. There was no possibility of divergent political tendencies to marred success, no over-insistence on citizenship, labor, and the rest, for those who were secretly individualistic and idle. Life was the one fount and center of it all, clad in the gorgeous robes of ancient worship. Of course the thought had been Felsenberg's, though a German name had been mentioned. It was positivism, of a kind, Catholicism without Christianity, humanity worshipped without its inadequacy. It was not man that was worshipped, but the idea of man, deprived of a supernatural principle. Sacrifice, too, was recognized, the instinct of oblation without the demand made by transcendent holiness upon the blood-guiltiness of man. In fact, said Percy, it was exactly as clever as the devil, and as old as Cain. The advice he had given to the Holy Father just now was a counsel of despair, or of hope. He really did not know which. He had urged that a stringent decree should be issued, forbidding any acts of violence on the part of Catholics. The faithful were to be encouraged to be patient, to hold utterly aloof from the worship, to say nothing unless they were questioned, to suffer bonds gladly. He had suggested, in company with the German cardinal, that they too should return to their respective countries at the close of the year, to encourage the waverers. But the answer had been that their vocation was to remain in Rome, unless something unforeseen happened. As for Felsenberg, there was little news. It was said that he was in the East, but further details were secret. Percy understood quite well why he had not been present at the worship, as had been expected. First, it would have been difficult to decide between the two countries that had established it, and secondly, he was too brilliant a politician to risk the possible association of failure with his own person. Thirdly, there was something the matter with the East. This last point was difficult to understand. It had not yet become explicit, but it seemed as if the movement of last year had not yet run its course. It was undoubtedly difficult to explain the new president's constant absences from his adopted continent, unless there was something that demanded his presence elsewhere. But the extreme discretion of the East, and the stringent precautions taken by the Empire, made it impossible to know any details. It was apparently connected with religion, 
There were rumors, portents, prophets, ecstatics there. Upon Percy himself had fallen a subtle change which he himself was recognizing. He no longer soared to confidence or sank to despair. He said his mass, read his enormous correspondence, meditated strictly, and, though he felt nothing, he knew everything. There was not a tinge of doubt upon his faith, but neither was there emotion in it. He was as one who labored in the depths of the earth, crushed even in imagination, yet conscious that somewhere birds sang, and the sun shone, and water ran. He understood his own state well enough, and perceived that he had come to a reality of faith that was new to him, for it was sheer faith, sheer apprehension of the spiritual, without either the dangers or the joys of imaginative vision. He expressed it to himself by saying that there were three processes through which God led the soul. The first was that of external faith, which assents to all things presented by the accustomed authority, practices religion, and is neither interested nor doubtful. The second follows the quickening of the emotional and perceptive powers of the soul, and is set about with consolations, desires, mystical visions, and perils. It is in this plane that resolutions are taken, and vocations found, and shipwrecks experienced. And the third, mysterious and inexpressible, consists in the reenactment, in the purely spiritual sphere, of all that has preceded, as a play follows a rehearsal, in which God is grasped, but not experienced. Grace is absorbed unconsciously and even distastefully, and little by little the inner spirit is conformed in the depths of its being, far within the spheres of emotion and intellectual perception, to the image and mind of Christ. So he lay back now, thinking, a long, stately, scarlet figure in his deep chair, staring out over holy Rome, seen through the misty September haze. How long, he wondered, would there be peace? To his eyes, even already the air was black with doom. He struck his handbell at last. Bring me Father Blackmore's last report, he said as his secretary appeared. End of Book Two, Chapter Five, Part One Recording by Maria Therese